KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning, I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, April 23rd. Solar-powered electric vehicle infrastructure for San Diego. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The University of California and Cal State University officials say all students and staff who come back to campus in the fall must be vaccinated. That's once the Food and Drug Administration officially approves COVID-19 vaccines. The UC and CSU systems are the largest school systems nationwide to announce such a mandate. The FDA doesn't have a date yet for when they officially approve any vaccines. The first female recruits to train in San Diego officially become Marines today. This first class will graduate on May 6th before a small group of family and friends. But the future of female recruits in San Diego is still uncertain as this class was a pilot project. Congress gave Marines until 2028 to integrate the West Coast boot camp. An alumna of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, Megan MacArthur, blasted off into space at about 3 this morning from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. She's part of the NASA SpaceX Crew-2 mission. They're headed to the International Space Station, where they'll stay for the next six months. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria unveiled a new pilot program on Thursday that will use solar power to charge electric vehicles in the city. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has more on the charging stations. We have police vehicles, fire engines, trash trucks, parking enforcement. 4,000 city vehicles and counting. Only 20 in the city's fleet are electrical vehicles, and they will be the driving force for San Diego's latest pilot program that aims to improve air quality, all while saving taxpayer money. Transportation is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, and so to really map how the city moves and to find the ways that we can drive down emissions, this is also a part of this budget. Mayor Todd Gloria says he's committed to transitioning the city's gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles. I'm extremely optimistic that this pilot is going to prove not just a savings for taxpayers, but really help our city meet our ambitious climate action plan goals. According to city officials, San Diego spends $6 million on fuel every year. They're hoping to cut that cost as the city transitions to solar-powered vehicles. 
The city has partnered up with the San Diego-based company Beam Global for this project. The company's CEO, Desmond Wheatley, is confident the city will meet its goal towards a cleaner San Diego. The one thing they'll never generate is a utility bill. So these vehicles will drive on sunshine for free for their entire lives, which is obviously a very uh, important aspect of it. So far, the city has purchased two of the company's electric vehicle, autonomous chargers, for $155,000, which includes the first year of operation and maintenance. Wheatley hopes to eventually deploy more EV charging stations across San Diego, making it possible for San Diegans to charge their electrical vehicles for free. And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. Mayor Gloria also released his new budget this week. Following the murder of George Floyd, there's been a lot of calls to cut the San Diego Police Department's budget. But KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says this budget shows that the mayor is proposing the opposite. It continues to disappoint those of us who want real reform. Kira Green leads the progressive think tank Center on Policy Initiatives, which for years has been advocating for money in the police budget to be shifted to libraries, parks, affordable housing and social services. She says the $19 million increase for SDPD included in Mayor Gloria's proposed budget is a step in the wrong direction. There's been a study of what's happening in the police budget and there are clearly places where we can make reductions um, and be able to redirect those funds to things that are really going to deliver safety for San Diegans. The mayor's office says the increased police budget is mostly due to higher pension obligations, another cost the city is legally required to pay. Cutting the number of officers the city employs is something Gloria says he just won't do, at least for now. That would have been significant uh, service level reductions at a time when people are counting on the city to support uh, their needs right now. I don't think that's appropriate. The mayor is proposing a $4 million cut to police overtime. That funding would go to youth programs and the city's new police oversight commission. Some city council members are skeptical of the need for more police funding. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Twelve percent of all of San Diego County's child care providers closed down during the pandemic. The Child Care Providers Union says California needs to step in to make sure that child care is available for everyone, not just the fortunate few. KPBS's Christina Kim has more. Are you with us? Yeah! Are you with us, California? Yeah! Local child care providers say more state dollars are needed to ensure that California's youngest and most vulnerable people are cared for. Johanna Puno-Hester, vice chair of the Child Care Providers United Union, says everyone who needs child care should get it. We need structural change in to ensure every family has access to quality, affordable child care. We need to get rid of every child care desert here in California. Child care deserts are areas where the demand for child care is greater than the number of providers. More than half of all Californians lived in a child care desert before the pandemic. That number has only grown during the past year. In San Diego County, 535 child care providers have closed their doors. I have parents that don't even make it through my interview process. I have to turn them away because our program is currently full. Shante Brown is a San Diego child care provider near College Area. She says families will continue to live in poverty unless there's a real push to end child care deserts in places like East County and South Bay. I believe that people won't be able to go to work. I believe people won't be able to further their education. And I also believe that children will suffer. That's what will happen at the bottom line. Earlier this week, Child Care Providers United, which represents 
represents 40,000 child providers in California, reached an agreement with Governor Gavin Newsom for $25 million to expand child care capacity. This includes fee waivers and helping shuttered providers reopen. Union leaders and child care providers say they are grateful for this investment, but want to see a continued commitment to building an equitable child care system. And that was KPBS racial justice reporter Christina Kim. It's been less than two weeks since San Diego Unified began modified in-person instruction. But some schools are already seeing more students than the teachers union and school district agreed could attend in person. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has more. Since that agreement was made, the National Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that students are safe with three feet of distancing, which means class sizes could be larger. Union President Keisha Borden says renegotiating the agreement would take too long and hinted that it might mean the district will have to reduce the number of in-person instruction days. It wasn't just SDEA saying this must be the distancing. This was an agreement between the teachers and the district. Rebecca Fielding-Miller is a public health professor at UC San Diego. She backed the CDC's recommendation, saying more students can be in classrooms as long as ventilation and other safety protocols are in place. Making sure students are masking, um, making sure as many teachers are vaccinated as possible, and making that accessible, opening doors and windows, everything, um, good hand hygiene, everything that they should be doing already um, at five feet is exactly what they should be doing at three feet. District officials are exploring other alternatives. School board president Richard Barrera said some teachers have moved their classrooms to larger spaces on campus or are rotating students through the overflow rooms. And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. The investigation continues into the officer-involved shooting in Escondido that left a man dead on Wednesday morning. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more. We still don't know the name of the man shot by Escondido police officers on Wednesday morning. But Greg Angel, the CEO of Interfaith Services, said based off the description from police, he believes the man was someone receiving basic needs services from his organization. He said breakfast at the Interfaith Escondido cafeteria Thursday morning was somber. People who are living on the streets right now who were here this morning receiving basic needs services understood that they lost a member of their community and they're scared. Escondido police responded to a call of a man hitting cars with a metal object. Police said the man was holding the tool in a threatening manner, causing the officer to shoot at him. The suspect later died at a local hospital. Police said they believe he was homeless and someone they encountered many times before. And that was KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. And coming up on the podcast, scientists say the climate crisis is advancing so quickly that carbon capture technology is needed to remove CO2 emissions from the air. We'll have more on that next, just after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.
Global leaders at President Biden's Earth Day climate summit discussed ways to slash CO2 emissions as quickly as possible to avoid a disastrous increase in global warming. But some scientists are now saying that the only way to limit global temperature rise is to pair emission reduction efforts with a massive investment in carbon capture technology, basically removing some of the existing CO2 from the atmosphere. Ryan Hanna is an assistant research scientist at UC San Diego. He's the lead author of a paper on the emergency deployment of direct air capture as a response to the climate crisis. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Here's that interview. Now, I remember speaking to a climate scientist several years ago about the idea of using technology to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And at the time, it was treated a little bit like science fiction. Do we have the technology now to remove CO2 from the atmosphere? We do. It, it sounds like science fiction, but it's actually based in a process that is mature, well-known, and has been used in the oil and gas industry for, for decades. It's the process of capturing CO2 either from, from natural geologic sources or from industrial sources. Um, from a high level, it's quite simple. It, it just involves using uh, organic compounds that selectively absorb CO2 from, from gas streams. And so what you get out the back end is on the one hand, a pure CO2 stream that you can use, whether it goes to underground storage to address climate change concerns. In, in the past, it's gone to agriculture, food and beverage industries. So, so you get pure CO2 on the one hand, and then a relatively depleted uh, stream of atmospheric gases that are mostly free of CO2 that goes back to the atmosphere. So, so the technology is, is absolutely there. The concerns now, I think, have shifted to the costs. So you said one of the big issues right now is the money it would take. And, and what kind of money would it take to deploy direct air capture technology to make a significant difference in climate change? Yeah, the, the short answer is, is we don't quite know yet because no major commercial plant has been built. We, we have a few, a few pilot plants and those give us some initial numbers that could be indicative of, of what larger, in fact, much larger plants might do. But the reality is we, we simply don't know, e even at very high costs of storing CO2 through carbon capture and direct air capture. What we do know is that the climate modeling and the energy systems modeling that the IPCC carries out sh shows us that having these options, even at very high costs, reduces the overall cost of the decarbonization challenge in the long run. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that the cost of direct air capture of taking CO2 out of the air would be cost effective because the cost of reducing emissions alone to try to achieve the same level of carbon reduction would be more expensive. Is that right? That's absolutely right. One way to think about direct air capture and other uh, technologies, what we call negative emissions technologies that actually reduce CO2 out uh, of the atmosphere, is, is that they act as, as a backstop against all of the conventional mitigation that needs to happen in all of the economic sectors. So in, in, in for any economic sector, one can look at the cost of decarbonizing that sector. So for example, cement production or steel production, which are very hard to decarbonize or aviation, for example, for which we don't 
really know what the solutions are going to be and what their costs are going to be. We, we, we can, on the other hand, look to these negative emissions technologies as a backstop and say, well, if the negative emissions technologies are cheaper or appear to be less costly than going in, into the sector and decarbonizing it, then it would make sense to preferentially go with the negative emissions options instead, for, simply from a cost perspective. How much carbon could these negative emissions options take out of the atmosphere? In, in theory, it, it could do quite a lot. The, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the main international body uh, that, that does all of the, the, the modeling and, and scenario work that kind of tells us um, how, how quickly we need to reduce emissions overall, tells us that we will need something on the order of 200 to 1,000 gigatons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere. That's on the order of, at the low end, five to six years of, of global emissions, on the high end, 20 to 25 years of global emissions over the century. And so we know there's absolutely a need for these, for these different means of negative emissions, um, and really the sky is the limit for them. But this is not the whole solution, right? We still need to decrease our emissions. 100%. There's no way around that. Conventional mitigation, actually getting the emissions out of the economic sectors, in addition to negative emissions, those need to be seen as complements. Do you have hope that this week's climate summit will address the subject of direct air capture and maybe move that idea forward? I think the idea has, has come into the mainstream scientifically. It's hard for me to say whether it's in the mainstream publicly, but I think the idea that negative emissions are critical to the solution is now, I think, well, well accepted. And various, various groups, whether they're scientists in labs or whether they're NGOs or think tanks, are calling for massive government investment in these technologies. And so I do have hope that these efforts into improving and proving out the potential for these negative emissions technologies will emerge over the next decade. That was Ryan Hanna, an assistant research scientist at UC San Diego. You heard him speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. And for our art segment today, the Academy Awards will be this Sunday. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has composed her own list of 2020's best films. Here's Beth. 2020 was a crazy year. The pandemic impacted everyone, and it also changed the way we watched films. With cinemas closed, people streamed more movies than ever at home, including first-run Hollywood blockbusters. Drive-ins even saw a resurgence as a safe place to watch movies. For me, the caution I exercised to avoid getting COVID-19 made me hungry for films that were anything but cautious. So my 10 best list mostly highlights smaller films that pushed the envelope and displayed something unexpected. Ah! I'm always excited by new voices, and at the number 10 slot is His House, the debut feature of Remy Weeks. He brilliantly uses African culture and folklore to give fresh flavor to a familiar haunted house formula. I saw something in the duck. You have felt it too. At number nine is the first of a quartet of documentaries that just exploded expectations with creativity and energy. Dick Johnson is Dead is a daughter's film about her father. 
I suggested we make a movie about him dying. <laughs> he said yes. Filmmaker Kirsten Johnson stages her father's funeral before he dies and before he succumbs to dementia. The film is unexpectedly hilarious as well as poignant, always gracefully navigating between the two, so tears of laughter blur into tears of sadness. A radically different documentary comes in at number eight, Collective. Starting with a fire in a Bucharest club, this searing investigative documentary plays out like a Romanian All the President's Men. While Collective serves up riveting cinematic journalism, Time, coming in at number seven, is all about an expressionistic sense of artistry. Yeah, tell me the story. Um, we got a few more hours for the judge supposed to issue a ruling. He said two days, so today is day two. Filmmaker Garrett Bradley makes thoughtful, beautiful, and provocative choices as she pleads for a more compassionate legal system. As the title implies, time is a key element, and Bradley creates an ebb and flow that's exquisite. The final documentary on my list is The Truffle Hunters at number six. This is a film in which simplicity and minimalism become sublime as we look at a dying breed of men and their dogs who hunt for truffles in Italy. The next two films are from debuting filmmakers who display intoxicating talent. Are you happy or are you pretending to be happy? At number five, Carlos Mirabella Davis's Swallow plays out like a Hitchcock thriller in which a woman feels trapped in her elegant home and decides to swallow objects as her only means of controlling her life. Not a hair is out of place and the production design is rendered in terrifying perfection. At number four is the ferociously bold and original Saint Maud. From its opening score and fevered images, Saint Maud announces itself as an audaciously unsettling look at the dangerous intersection of madness and religion. Lord forgives that which is said in anger. The most mainstream film on my list is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom at number three. It won this spot almost exclusively on the jaw-dropping performance of an unrecognizable Viola Davis as the title character. Director George C. Wolfe adapts August Wilson's period play with vigor to remind us that the past is not some creaky old thing to be viewed through sepia-tone nostalgia. Wolfe makes us feel the heat and sweat of a past that informs the present. At number two is... I think you're bending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Charlie Kaufman's deliciously baffling film refuses to explain anything. Kaufman's puzzle box requires you spend time examining it. In our culture of instant gratification, it's nice to have something to savor long after it's been consumed. And my favorite film of 2020 is Brandon Cronenberg's relentless and disturbing Possessor Uncut. It manages to be both cerebral and visceral. Cronenberg's father, David, once told me in an interview that he's not interested in comfortable cinema. Neither is his son. And while I sit at home trying to stay safe from a pandemic, neither am I. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. You can find information about where to watch the films on Beth's top 10 list on her Cinema Junkie blog at kpbs.org. The Academy Awards will be televised this Sunday at 5 p.m. on ABC. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.